As Mary discussed in the previous episode, defense attorneys vilify victims and they prey on jurors' biases. So I decided to uncover and share a homosexual domestic violence victim's statement that he read aloud to a jury. His case went through to a jury trial the first time around and the jury decided his ex was not guilty. Now the second time around, he pleads with the jury to set aside their personal biases surrounding the gay and lesbian community. The victim chose to remain anonymous and the voice reading the statement is not his own. Looking back on my youth, I would say that I was fortunate, not essentially in regards to having an abundance of material items, but more on a personal level of moral principle and good example. I was raised with a solid understanding of people, acceptance, empathy of other, for others, leading by example, treating others how you would like to be treated, forgiveness and the ability to assess others by getting to know who they are and how they treat other people. Most importantly, to be in the service of others by listening, loving unconditionally, providing support. In having a solid understanding of these childhood principles, I have always been there for those who have suffered. My grandmother and mother were both victims of physical and mental abuse. My grandmother was also a domestic violence survivor back in the days when people did not usually interfere by calling the police on aggressors abusing their victims. The spouses and victims would endure their attacker's abuse in fear of losing their marriage, families, homes, respect for them, their loved ones, and society. Most of the victims we hear in the current society are the inspiring stories told by women, my grandmother included. Due to an increasing amount of 911 calls, court proceedings, and public awareness, our laws have changed and domestic violence between a man and a woman is not acceptable in society. What we don't hear about often are the untold stories of domestic violence survivors in our gay and lesbian community. Our gay and lesbian community exists throughout the world and is most and is most progressive today than it, it than it has ever been in the past. The societal norm of the term domestic violence is usually thought in terms of a man and a woman, but when it happens between two men or two women, it can take on less severe connotations of just a brawl between two dudes or that was a cat fight. The, act, the actuality of this thought process is quite co contrary to how domestic violence is applied in court of law. The acts of violence between two people are free of discrimination whether you are homosexual, heterosexual, male or female. The truth is that domestic violence can happen to anyone. I know this because I am a gay male living in San Luis Obispo County and a, and a domestic violence survivor. I started dating another man about 10 years my senior, back in the spring of 2015. We had met on a common dating app designed to meet other gay and bisexual men. The idea of meeting someone on an app seemed ridiculous, having briefly lived in Southern California and opening openly gay for the past 19 years. The reality is that San Luis Obispo County is rather conservative and there are not that many places for gay and lesbian people to meet. I took my chances and ended up in a volatile rela relationship over the span of four months. Four months does not seem very long, but when someone in a, is in a relationship that ends in violence, that type of abuse and emotional damage is enough to last a lifetime. My former partner appeared very kind, respectful, courteous, understanding, and loving when we first met. He was very flattering in the form of compliments and gave the appearance of someone who was ready for a serious relationship. Over the course of a month, the signs of flattery faded away, 
and were replaced by an alter ego in the form of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde personality. His kindness was replaced with anger from his past that coupled with fits of extreme rage, anger, hostility, epithets, and accusatory statements of unrealistic perceptions. During these horrific fits, I would feel bad for him and try to talk things out and help him in the best way I could. I always thought that talking that talking things out was a productive and therapeutic way to communicate and express oneself. As I started to ask more questions, there had been a solid understanding from his own admittance that he had been brutally beaten and mentally abused by his father as a child. A pattern of excessive alcohol consumption would always stay true to form and he would almost always start to get emotional then start to apologize profusely after a disagreement that resulted in an argument. Having been mentally abused as a child, I had understood my ex on that level and empathized with him as I did with any family members or friend who has ever suffered from physical abuse. I felt compassion for him and thought if there was some way to help, perhaps he could heal from this and move on with a healthy perspective on life. Nearing the end of our short-lived relationship, his alcohol consumption had increased and our arguments were getting worse. After suggesting the prospect of therapy in Alcoholics Anonymous, I had slowly come to realize that he did not want help. I went to visit on an evening when we were discussing the topic of monogamy and I had somehow been under the impression that he was cheating. I asked him if that was something he had been doing and his reaction was quite alarming. He grabbed a water bottle and threw the contents at me, which got all over my hair, face, and clothes. I was appalled, shocked, and when he was faced with the question of why, all he said was that the act was no different than throwing water on someone at a club when they are dancing. I asked the following day if he had remembered what he did that night before, and he said was, I'm sorry display of emotional regret. I forgave him, but he had started to feel like breaking up was going to be the best for the both of us. I started to distance myself by not visiting with him or answering phone calls, texts, or messages via social media. After a short period, a weekend, of minimal contact, I received a barrage of insults fueled by anger in the form of voicemails and text messages. I finally called him back with intent on setting a date to meet in public so that we could respectfully go our separate ways. We met a week later when things somewhat settled so that we could discuss the nature of our relationship. He immediately started crying, as usual, promised to begin counseling, and I started to feel bad for him. I started to question my intent on breaking up with him, and I figured at least if he went to counseling, then that could be a beneficial start. I had made the mistake of staying the night and thus the drinking started. Later that evening, an argument sparked about my intentions to intentionally break up with him. He was upset with the fact that I had intended on leaving him and the argument begun. The only difference was that this time he had pulled out a loaded rifle and was telling me not to be scared. I was then pushed down onto his bed, immobilized from my waist down, and was being strangled in a choke hold from behind. I could not move my arms or legs and was starting to feel lightheaded and feeling like the room was fading away. I somehow mouthed the words to stop and he slipped his opposite arm around my neck and did a reverse chokehold. 
held it for a few more seconds, and then released the pressure on his own terms. After the strangulation, I began to cough and felt it was I was going to pass out. The emotion started to come out, and I wanted to leave, but was at a state of shock and did not know what to do. He also lived well over an hour away from home, and after having some wine that evening, I was not suitable to drive. I felt fearful, trapped and in a position of vulnerability. Then his, his emotions took over and he started to apologize and cry like I had never seen before. He started to hug me and continued to keep the same emotion until he fell asleep. I was exhausted, confused, and eventually went to sleep on the couch once he passed out. I woke up the next morning with a sore throat, confusion, and not sure how to process what happened the night before. I waited for him to wake up so we could talk about it. I had never experienced anything like this on a personal level and was not sure if there was a right or wrong way in handling this. I was on the couch when he had awoken the next morning. He immediately went to the kitchen, started drinking whiskey left over from the night before. Sometime in the afternoon, his roommates had arrived and I had gone to the back room to rest before making the trip back home. During this time, he had entered the room where I was resting and started to smell the foul odor of alcohol on his breath. He started to briefly discuss the incident from the night before when it started into a verbal argument. The argument started to escalate and I got off the bed only to find myself instantaneously backed into a wall without an escape route. I was then aggressively lunged at with a mocked gesture of a closed fist. My reaction was to instantly defend myself by pushing him away from me. I told him to stop and then, and was then lunged at a second time. I was very fear, fearful and afraid that he was somehow, that he would somehow get a hold of me and perhaps strangle me again or do something far worse. I pushed, pushed him away a second time, but then tent on running as fast as I could out of the house. I was then grabbed by the shirt and slammed up against the computer desk and then quickly noticed one of his hands around my neck. He then slammed my head up against a wall and was in, with one hand tightly gripped around my throat. The back of my head went straight to the, into the wall, leaving a dent behind. Then came his other hand gripped in a tightly closed fist as I was struck in the eye with full force, not once, but twice. He somehow lost his grip during the movement accompanied by his attack I was able to get away and quickly run out of the house. Within minutes after the attack, I had placed a 911 call. Police officers arrived at the scene of the crime. I had injuries to my face, body, and the back of my head was beginning to swell. The police officer did an initial investigation, took photos, and asked if I wished to press criminal charges, which resulted in the arrest of my former partner. I then gathered my things and stayed the night with a couple that I had recently befriended at the time. I woke up the next morning to excruciating pain all over my body, extreme bruising and a knot the size of a golf ball on the back of my head. I was apparently struck so hard that the blood vessels in my eye had hemorrhaged from impact upon being struck, then turning the whitest color of my eye into blood red coloring, which lasted for three weeks. I had also received several lengthy text messages after the attack from my ex. He had then blamed me for my own attack and then apologized at the same time by saying he loved me. 
I never responded to any of his messages, which also included a phone call and a voice message. I had then filed for a temporary domestic violence restraining order, which included no contact of any kind and stay away order of 33 yards granted by a local judge. I then was faced with the displeasure of communicating with a criminal defense attorney representing his client, my ex, on both the criminal and civil case cases filed. At this point, I was put into a position where I needed to acquire legal representation for the civil order because the communications between his defense attorney and I were less than subpar. His attorney did not care much for me, and the feeling was mostly was most certain, certainly mutual. During the criminal arraignment, the charge of domestic battery was pressed and pleaded not guilty by the defense. The defense was requesting a trial by jury, and thus the preparation for trial begun. Over the course of 13 months, a series of court postponements, filed motions, and a lengthy investigation, I was eventually subpoenaed by the court to testify on the witness stand. By this time, there was a new criminal defense attorney and judge assigned to the case, with all previous rulings still applicable. I was given the daunting task of testifying before 12 strangers and having to relive the abuse endured just shy over a year prior. I remember the experience being rather surreal and ready for it to finally be over with justice served. A verdict was finally reached and the jurors decided that my ex was not guilty. He was acquitted on the charge of domestic battery and a whole year of seeking justice was diminished as soon as the verdict was read. It was even more devastating that faith was entrusted in 12 people to make an informed decision based on facts rather than personal bias. Jurors are in a very powerful position that can affect not only the defendant's life but the life of a victim as well. This power is given to the people and on behalf of the people to whom we coexist, allowing a, pers a, personal, a person to not be held accountable for their actions, protections, and justice. It also further placates the actions of aggressors and creates an open door for them to commit future crimes of equal or greater magnitude. This experience has raised question, questions in my mind as to how residents view domestic violence. In this county aside from how the law is applied, the injustice served was not a lack of discernment by law enforcement or the district attorney's office, but that of our fellow peers in the community. I could not stress enough my responsibility, the responsibility it takes to be a juror and the lasting effects that a decision like this has on a victim. My only hope in writing this is that people should never be afraid to call upon law enforcement for assistance. Please do not feel ashamed or feel that no one cares because they are mindful people in, this, in the world. There are many gay and lesbian people suffering from domestic violence and living in fear to report their aggressors. They are afraid to speak out for the fear that the cry, that the, their cases will simply not be he heard or treated the same as anyone else. My message to them is not to be afraid and know that the law is on your side. No one has the right to physically harm you and by no means in anyone deserving of abuse just because you are gay. In conclusion, I would like to let potential jurors know that holding those accountable for their actions is like a second chance at life. It allows people a chance to have contrition, make mistakes, 
and then learn from them. This experience has not altered the very core of who I am. If I had to go through the whole process again, I would not have changed a thing. I'm a domestic violence survivor who just so happens to be gay, and my faith be entrusted into others to act upon one's conscience on behalf of those seeking adequate protections and justice in a court of law.